0: Hey, this is Greg Barron. You're having the honor of hearing me on PF Tape Recorder. But really, just the show's fine. It doesn't need me at all.
1: Hello there, I'm PF. This is my tape recorder. Coming up, comedian Ali Sadiq. You know, my point came when I was, um
0: incarcerated, and I was an SSI on the block, um, and I used
1: to watch Martin. We are more from Ali in just a little bit. Uh, we have, of course, one of our most popular features. It's Facebook, not Factbook, coming up. And at the end of the show, we have a song of the week from The Lighthouse and The Whaler. The uh, song came out about a year and a half ago, but I just kind of rediscovered it. It came up on Shuffle on my iPod. Uh, I really enjoyed it, and I think you will, too. But first, now, let's get to that. Facebook, not Factbook. It's time for another installment of.
0: It's Facebook, not Factbook.
1: So I have a couple of cousins uh, that post a lot of political stuff on Facebook. And in fact, I've kind of dialed it back because. Um, my position now is that when you see people that aren't normally political posting political stuff, boy, you know we're in a mess. But anyway, uh, my cousins, even before the election, were posting all this political stuff. And as I've said before on Facebook, not Factbook, they bat about 750 Uh They sometimes get, they get rooked. Um, for example, they, they, one of them did post that thing about Donald Trump saying that if he ever ran as uh, a, for president, he'd run as Republican because they only watch Fox News and all that, which was you know completely debunked. He never said that. And as I've always said, too, it's crazy people would post that kind of stuff when this guy says actual crazy things. And you don't have to make anything up. So anyway... One of my cousins posted this meme of uh, Betsy DeVos, uh, our new education secretary, and it said, uh, it's her in front of the congressional committee, but then it quotes her saying uh, something from an interview she did uh, back about 15, 20 years ago that said, uh, you know, my family donates a lot of money to Republican causes, and I'm paraphrasing, and we expect a return on our investment. And I'm thinking, oh, this is just, they're kind of paraphrasing, they're just kind of, you know, putting words in her mouth to kind of be funny because it kind of looks like that's what happened. And I noticed in the corner that it says source the new yorker so i click on it and it goes to the actual new yorker page and there's an article though quotes are from an interview with some magazine some capitol hill magazine where she actually says it she really says it she says yes we expect and this is as the line we expect a return on our investment now you'll re- remember when donald j trump said this in the debate
0: i will tell you that our system is broken I give to many people before this, before two months ago, I was a businessman. I give to everybody. When they call, I give. And you know what? When I need something from them two years later, three years later, I call them. They are there for me.
1: Now he implies, since the system is broken, <clears throat> that he's going to fix it. But that's an old advertising trick. Uh, he's not going to fix anything. Uh, he's going to fix us because, as you know, with the appointment of Betsy DeVos, he proved he's going to keep the the same system, which is just fascinating. And I know someone pointed out to me on Facebook this, well, you know, what difference does it make whether Betsy DeVos is the is the Secretary of Education? She doesn't have any power to set curriculum or anything like that. And that while that is true, she can't make the rule that we have to have Bibles in schools. She'll be the one passing them out so i think there should be a little bit of concern there and uh you know as always yeah i advise you check these memes especially nowadays it's you know with all this uh so-called fake news out there very easy to check things you know cross-check them through a couple of different sources because as we all know
0: it's facebook not factbook
1: Ali Sadiq is a stand-up comedian from Houston, Texas, where he still resides, but he tours all over the country, headlining clubs and theaters. Here now is our interview with Ali Sadiq. And we're off. Okay, so great. Do um, so you still live in Houston full-time, then? You haven't relocated to... Uh, L.A. or New York, you, you, you've been thinking about that?
0: I haven't been thinking about it, not at all. I haven't spent one minute thinking uh-huh. about moving to
1: L.A. or New York. Well, Houston traditionally has had a pretty good comedy scene. Ralphie May came out of there. My friend Greg Warren started here in Cincinnati, but he really uh, got some traction there in Houston, so he kind of considers that his second comedy home. So, uh, And, of course, Bill Hicks going back, Dwight Slade. A lot of people come out of Houston. Yeah,
0: a lot, man. We got it. You know, you had Bob biggest staff. Oh, that's um, right, yeah, I know Bob. Yeah, you and you know, Um, Vidal, who else you have out of Houston? Man, we have a lot of people out here. Now,
1: um, yeah. Three. Now, as I was gonna say, many people know, of course, you know, all those guys started, you know, in, in comedy clubs, mostly at open mics, of course, but... Um, Uh, For the benefit of our listeners of the podcast, uh, can you explain your entry point into stand-up comedy? Which is rather unique. Um,
0: My my entry point came when I was um, incarcerated and I was an SSI on the block. um, And I used to watch Martin and I was SSI over close custody and they didn't have a TV. So they didn't know what was going on. A lot of them had been over there for a while so I used to just Mick Martin, and do the whole like all that the whole episode acted out, and once um, that went off, you know, for the new season to come around, I would just start doing you know commentary about what was going on in the prison. So okay. That's how my that's how I kind of started.
1: Okay, and uh, did did you again, I guess uh, fans? Did the the other prisoners uh, take a liking to that? Were people annoyed by it? Because I mean, that environment, I'm not sure how that would that
0: would go uh, I was I was um, you know that that was for close custody but other than that I was just pretty jovial anyway because anything I said you know like man, I don't really make jokes if I say something that happens to be funny that's just what it is yeah but you now, pretty much you know most people were happy with anything I did because I was a sense of I was a sense of peace outside of what you know i want this lady to go outside of normally what what they could have been doing.
1: Yeah. So when you were released, did you immediately think I'm gonna try stand up because that was because I was um I interviewed Joey Coco Diaz a couple of years ago and he had a similar situation. He'd been incarcerated and even though he had a college degree, he, he was divorced. He was broke. He couldn't find another job and he figured, well, hell, no one's gonna do a background check for me to do stand up comedy. So he he pursued that. Was that kind of your situation?
0: No, I knew that's what I was gonna do when I came out. okay. I had no other I had no other desire to do anything else. That was it. I said when I get out, you know, um I think that's one of the things that most um people who was incarcerated with me, I knew that I was incarcerated my that that's what I said I was gonna do once I got out and I, that's what I
1: actually did. And so, uh, how long after you were out, were you at an open mic? Was it just a matter of days or hours? or how? Was I really only
0: I really did... I um, don't consider it an open mic because it was like the Apollo night. Okay. So, you know, it was like poets and rappers and singers and, uh, and comics. So that's why I actually started this club called Just Joking. And they had Apollo night on Thursday. And that's why I actually started that. I, I've only done... Like one open mic in the nineteen years of me doing stand up.
1: Oh wow, okay. Um, so you said Martin was uninfluenced, uh, but were there any other influences, or, or were they kind of rather limited while you were uh, while you were incarcerated? You know, did you kind of develop your own style just out of that necessity?
0: No, my my life didn't start incarcerated. I watched. Um, oh, that's true. Comedy yeah. grew, grew I mean... up um, listening to comedy on albums.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. So who yeah, were, was, who was,
0: you, who do you think I started? I was born in prison. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> that was something that I got locked when I was nineteen, so that just happened to be one of the outlets why I, why I actually started honing my comedy skills. But I, I came out watching Death Jam. Okay. Um, you know, and listening to the, um, blacksmiths and Bicentennial you know, nigga. I, I I listened to all the Richard Pryor albums. I love Rodney Dangerfield on HBO. Um, I listen to Sheila Stiller, Stiller. I'm, I'm kind of like a student of comedy. Long oh, before cool. you know, I was um, incarcerated. You know, even yeah, though yeah. you you sell drugs or you or shoot somebody in the head, you still want to laugh. still
1: That <laughs> it was a dumb question, though. I have interviewed one or two people in comedy that kind of just fell into it and had never watched comedy in their lives and just kind of like were told they were funny and, and got up on stage. But um, I guess, yeah, most people are, are like you. They've, they've grown up watching comedy. And as a student of comedy, though, uh, how do you feel comedy has, has changed? Because it, it's strange. Music seems to, like, from the, like, 60s and 70s, people still kind of listen to that. But at a certain point, comedy, you know, people look back at it and go, oh, that's really kind of... In, that's kind of old-fashioned, that's really not, you know, it, it doesn't seem as funny, or it seems kind of corny, I mean, it, it, do you find that to be the case, comparing comedy from different eras?
0: No, I think um, comedy is kind of like, really, the, it, comedy is really underrated in people's minds over anything, because yeah. most award shows, you know, are hosted by comics. you know, most you know, things that you write, that people write behind the scenes is comics writing. You know, so we kind of get a bum rap you know, in the, the world of, you know, industry. Even as far as being a comic, you know, there's actually no real comedy award, you know, unless you're on TV or you're in a movie you know, did they acknowledge you for being a comic, but what if that's not what you want to do, whether well, that's not what your skill is. So, somebody could do comedy and be a great comic for 30 years and never get acknowledged for it Because yeah. he didn't, he didn't have a sitcom or he wasn't in a movie. I thought that was, a, I thought that was called an actor. Yeah. So, as a comic, you have to become, it seems like you have to become something else to get acknowledged in comedy. So, you know, and that's the mindset of evil. Most of the time, you get underrated when it comes to your contribution to society or to the industry, or you know what what have you. So even comedy has changed so much, and to the point because now people that have actually bought into anybody can do it. You know, which is which is very offensive. Yes, that anybody anybody who can make anybody halfway laugh, they'll tell them, well, you should be a comedian. So if somebody can match colors, should they be a painter? Yeah. Or, you know, if you have a drum, should you be a musician? You know, that, that doesn't make sense, that just because you made the people around you laugh. Now, you take those same people that's not familiar with you and you t- say those same things, nobody's going to laugh because they're not familiar with the story.
1: Yeah, that's and it. now the
0: art, the, the, the craft of being a comic is to take a story that somebody's not familiar with and add your jovial season to it and, and make them live in the story with you and laugh about the same part of it that you laugh at and find a so i So I'm like a vintage comic. I, I still, I sit down when I come to the stage and I tell... Stories, and sometimes I'm I'm physical, but for the most part, you know, I commentate on what the world is and my my experiences and experiences that I've had with other people.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you say that because you remember the old uh, TV series MASH, of course, and uh, there's an episode where uh, Winchester treats a. a patient and he's injured his his left hand and uh... Winchester says, well i saved your legs so you can walk and he goes i don't care if i can walk i'm I'm a, a pianist i play the piano and uh... winchester tries to help him and at the end of the episode even the guys reluctant in, in a nutshell winchester says hey look you know i can play the piano too but i can't make music you can make music and it's the same thing with comedy i i go to open mic sometime and tell jokes and i, I mean i'm a writer i can write jokes but i can't make comedy <laughs> in the same way so it's interesting that, that you put it that way um, you know, being able to kind of like, you know, I guess you have to be funny in your bones, as Jimmy Pardo says, and a lot of people don't don't understand that. And yeah, you can develop a skill at storytelling and joke telling, but you you kind of have to have it in your bones too, don't you think? You,
0: it it kind of depends. Now, you know, you have to be kind of made like, because comics don't retire, we die. Yeah. So, if it's a comic that's if somebody who saying he's a comedian and he's and he has a retirement plan, then he's just a person who's trying to make money off of the craft. Yeah. You know, like, you know, Anthony Anderson is a comedic actor. Yes. You know, he, he's not really a stand-up, even though he's jovial, but he's a comedic actor and you, and you have to respect him for that craft. So, you know, anybody doing what, you, you're not even doing what I do. You know, sometimes people go on stage just for shock value and say a bunch of shocking nothing. Yeah. And and it's all hacked up. But what it, what is the experience? What do you learned? You know, it's just a different mindset when it comes to real comedy. I remember D.L. told me a comic that gets on stage and has no risk. is it, You kind of like just a, a person telling jokes you not, you don't, you don't have a risk factor up there. You know, yeah. you have to report and say what you feel from and nobody's gonna, everybody's not gonna agree. You have 400 people in the room. It's a craft and a balance to appeasing all of those people at different times during the course of your set. And sometimes you appease in one group and sometimes you upset in the group and sometimes you, that group that was upset, that you just haphazardly
1: have.
0: Exactly. You know, that's kind of like in your
1: DNA. So when you're on stage, do you call a lot of audibles? Like if you're, you know, halfway through the set and you kind of gauge the crowd, do you think, oh, well, you know, maybe you were planning on telling one story, but you think, well, heck, if they liked that previous story, maybe they'll like this one better, or do you have a fairly set idea of where things are going?
0: I do... A different said every show so I don't have a standard anything because it's not really based upon the audience based on how I feel when I go out there okay I don't I don't feel the same way at 730 you know that you know at 930 I feel, I'm gonna feel a different way that I felt at 730 you know I this may be why I'm at it so it's certain experiences that I may want to tell, or, and it just, they just, the audience is different, I just go a whole totally different way. And it's based on what, whatever I'm telling at this time.
1: Okay.
0: And and then, and then sometimes I force, I force the issue. Like, I want to talk about this. Like, especially if I hear something, you know, like I was doing a show and God told me, but you, it, you know, this club is kind of they kind of they kind of tight in Chicago on certain things. And I'm like, what? And Things like Trump. Huh. So I went out and did a set about Trump. And, you know, and they, I heard the week before they was bullying people who were talking about Trump. Wow. And I said, well, I accept that challenge, and my Trump stuff is totally different. I think about it is totally different, so I did it. Uh, it went over uh, extremely well and I just looked at him like I thought y'all said you couldn't talk about Trump and then they was like well they don't they don't take kindly to the word rape and I got a whole a whole set <laughs> about rape but I have a logic behind what yeah. I'm speaking about so it, it may not be the same delivery you may have been talking about rape in some lewd uh, shrewd type of way some type of crass way and my thing is about the word the actual word rate in the power in the word so it's two different two different scopes of
1: it Yes, definitely so. uh, is it more satisfying in that case though with with the Trump material is it that you that you made people laugh or that you made people laugh with something that someone said couldn't be done or is it just you know is it like throwing a touchdown and then also getting the extra point and running in the extra point for the you know the extra two?
0: Yeah, I, I think I have grudges against um, things that when people say they can't be done. Like that's, that's probably the reason why I haven't moved to the other L.A. because I hated the I hated the whole fact uh-huh. that somebody told me that you had to move there in order to make it. And I thought and I was like, "That's dumb." That's like that's dumb. And then that I, the whole saying of uh, you have to move away from Houston and go somewhere else to get recognized and come back because a prophet is not, wel- is not really welcoming his own home. I say, and that's dumb. Why wouldn't you celebrate the person who you watch come up from your own city? It is a dumb mentality. Yeah. So, and why? Would, if you're talented, why do you have to go to LA and New York? Is that the only place, they think that's the only place talent is, it. That's, that that's, that's the only talented people live in LA in New York and why and, and, and then you become like that as a, as a as an artist you start start as a comic I'm saying hundreds of comics go to LA and then every time you see them they talk in LA talk huh. um every every time you hear they say it's something about LA and And then New York is the same way. Uh, Because you'll eventually hear something about the train or or the city. I'm like, yo, people, why go to New York and talk about New York? They know what's going on in New York.
1: That's true.
0: Yeah, they from there, you know. But the world is bigger than New York and L.A. So I rather talk about a broader scope of things. I don't want to get caught up in L.A. and New York lingo or talk or like that's the that's the pinnacle of where. stand-up is, it's, it's, it's millions of places. And people, funny people are everywhere. Yeah. And you shouldn't have to uproot your life to go somewhere else to prove and struggle, to prove that you're funny. And I don't think that's a part of it. I think you, I think that you develop a home where you are. That's, that's a mistake. That's not even just the industry. That's a mistake, that's a mistake. that other comics make. They don't believe in themselves other enough to stick it out. Yeah. And I, I just really felt like, and I'm telling I'm you that they'll find me. I make enough noise out of Houston that they'll find me. Yeah. You know, and and it happened. So it, I'm, I'm like a unicorn, and and I embrace that. So it's like if 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 people come see me, they never saw me before. I'm I'm pretty different than most. You know, I have a different outlook on, on a lot of things but i'm'm I'm, I'm really you know blessed to be in a position for you know you know i used to you know wonder when it's going to be those days where people want to interview me and talk to me and hear what i really think about a thing and so'm I'm, I'm very humbled at this point to to get to get those opportunities and but that at the same time i'm you have people who get these opportunities that, that did a, a one-minute sketch on Instagram, and now people are labeling them a comic as well. And I'm like, because you're on Instagram or you did a YouTube clip, does that actually make you a comic or that make you a, a, a sketch actor? Which, Which is it?
1: Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a very different skill set. So you're, I take you're uh, along the path of just building the the career and you know b- playing bigger and bigger rooms, a la maybe like a Brian Regan, or as Jim Gaffigan was doing before he got his TV show. But where you're just playing bigger and bigger rooms and getting your audience and and going that route.
0: Yeah. So you know, I'm on I'm on the road. Uh... Touring and, and most of the improv and the funny bone with my Damage Goods tour. I have, I, I have more Comedy Central Damage Goods. And I just did, did the half hour, um Comedy Central half hour special. So I'm just going around right now, just kind of doing some of the stuff that I'm getting ready to do for my, um my four hour special on Comedy Central. Awesome. So just, you know, just doing bigger rooms and then, you know, people saw me on oh, This Is Not Happening. And so they kind of want me to do some of those stories. This is not happening. And since I've been down that two seasons out of the three they had, yeah. four seasons coming up. Um. So yeah, just and then I'm on this other tour called Southern Fried with um some other comedians that um Thomas Miles from um that you Thomas um, from Steve Harvey one showing um Kid Space Junior from Steve Harvey one showing uh. Billy Sorrell from and Out and our poet, Seven, um, from Versus and Flow, and Marcus D. Wildin' from Yolanda Adams on the show. we all on tour together, and everybody's out of Houston. So it's a um, pretty good thing. They go on the road with some people who started with you. What
1: is? Yeah, that sounds, that sounds awesome. Well, it sounds like things are moving in the right direction for you, sir, and I appreciate you taking the time today. Uh, this will be in print. Uh in print and online for City Pages the week that you're up there in Minneapolis. So do look for that. Oh, man. Awesome. Thank Great.
0: you. It was, it was I pop. really won't do
1: turn out. Great. Oh, and the, the epi- this podcast episode will drop on Sunday and I'll send you the link for that as well. Okay, thank you so much. Man. All right, thanks, man. Good talking to you. You thanks. too. Bye-bye. Thanks again to Ali Sadiq for being on the show. You can catch Ali, well... I'm not really sure. I know he's in Minneapolis February 22nd through the 26th at, I believe, the House of Comedy. For all your Ali Sadiq needs, though, go to alisadiq.com. And Ali is A-L-I, Sadiq is S-I-D-D-I-Q. And then you can find all the dates. It won't load on my old rubbishy computer here, which is what I'm using to record the podcast today. So that's going to take us up to the song of the week. As I mentioned in the opening, song of the week is from The Lighthouse and the Whaler from my hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. And this album, Mount Royal, came out in 2015. uh, but I was listening to my iPod the other day, and uh, up on shuffle came this song called "Closer," and it doesn't really sound like the rest of their stuff. And you'll see why it's uh, it's straight in my basket as soon as it starts up. Uh, I, I like this tune a lot. The, the song is called "Closer." Uh, it's got a nice little drum start to it. Gets all keyboardy, and you're gonna be like, "Oh yeah, this is this is straight in PF's basket." So I hope it's in your straight in your basket as well. This is the Lighthouse and the Whaler with our song of the week, "Closer." PF tape recorder, so long, and thanks for listening.